Amen, amen. Thank you, Brother Shouse. We appreciate it so much. Uh, it's a blessing to be here with you this morning. If you have a Bible, turn with me, if you will, please, to Titus chapter 3, which we just read from. Have an opportunity this morning to examine God's Word together. It is a great privilege and joy uh, just to get to do what I do. It's an honor and a privilege to, to be in New Orleans and to train up pastors and missionaries. If you don't know what a seminary is, let me explain it real quick. We train pastors and missionaries and youth pastors and worship leaders. We train people to go serve in the churches of the Southern Baptist Convention. We are brought into existence by the Southern Baptist Convention, the churches of the convention, and we're funded and supported by you as well. And so it's a, it's a joy for me for a lot of different reasons. Uh, but most of all, it's just good for me to be able to come out and see you and to be with you. Can I just say this real quick? Because we are in a delicate moment in our country and in our convention where you, you've heard that the convention's going to be out here this week. You likely have seen things over the last few weeks and months related to various controversies that are boiling. Those things are very real. Uh, there are issues that we have to address even this week, things that we have to fix and work to be done in the decade before us that we have to give ourselves to. But I'm afraid that if the only view you have of the Southern Baptist Convention is what you see on Twitter or social media in some way, then it will cause you to despair. And indeed, when you look at the convention that way, it looks grim and it looks awful. I have the privilege of getting to be in a different church every single week, whether that's in Mississippi or California or Chicago or Louisiana or wherever it's going to be. Big churches, little churches, white churches, African-American churches, new churches, old churches, church plants, you name it. I get to see all of it from my job and the, the preaching that I get to do. Here's the one common thing I can say to you that's very different from the view you'll get on Twitter is that at the end of the day, no matter which one of those churches I've been in on a given Sunday, Southern Baptists are kind, they're hardworking, they're humble, they love Jesus, and they want to win people for Christ. That's who we are. So know that that's the fabric of our convention. And once again this morning, I get to see it with my very own eyes. So thank you for being exactly who you are and what you are. It's a privilege to be with you this morning. All right, I could talk introductory things for a long, long time. We've already read the passage of Scripture together this morning. I won't reread it. I'm going to be dealing with verse number 1 all the way down, really through verse number 8. Uh, let me just pray for us since we've already read it, and we will jump into our text together this morning. Let's pray. Lord, we love you, and we desire above everything to give our lives for you, to live humbly to walk graciously, to be the people that you've called us to be, to be faithful in that, Lord, to love you and to delight in you and to always remember who and what we were before we came to know you. And so, Father, I pray for these precious people here at Pathway Church that, God, you would infuse within their hearts a commitment to you and that you'd kindle and fan the flame of their affections for you this morning. God, do this morning in our hearts what I can't do. Lord, speak to us challenge us, encourage us. Lord, capture our hearts, we pray. We love you, we give ourselves to you, and we ask your blessings in Jesus' name, amen. Let me ask you a question this morning as we jump into the text here. Have you ever forgotten something that was essential? I mean, like we do this all the time, right? We do it in little dumb things and little silly things. You know, you go to the grocery store because you need some milk, 
And heaven forbid you should go to a Target to go to that grocery store because they suck you into everything else. And, you know, the next thing you know, you've got crackers and new coat hangers and you got all this miscellaneous stuff in your cart and you check out and you get home and you realize you didn't buy milk. The very thing you went there for, you didn't do. We do that with little things. And unfortunately, we do that with big things, too. One of the saddest examples of the way that we do that is, well, life. We come into this world and we get consumed with the shiny things of this world, the things in this world that entice us and charm us. We give ourselves to it wholeheartedly, missing the very reason we're here in the first place, to love God and to know God. We miss it when we think about our witness in this world. I mean, uh, I do often say we live in a broken world, a world that is ever increasingly more confused, moving in the wrong direction, doing all the wrong things, and devouring itself with its ideas and its actions. How do we share Christ in that world? And here too, if we're not careful, we can miss it. We can fail to do that which is most essential. And so I want to talk to us this morning from Titus chapter 3 about keeping that which is essential in this age. We live in the year 2022. And frankly, while it's been true in the United States in previous decades that we can compare and contrast Parts of our country like California from the south where I'm from, yeah, those, those little distinctions are still very much true, right? But I can tell you this, everywhere I go, crazy is afoot. Confusion is afoot. Brokenness is afoot. And so what's essential for us now in this day? What's essential for us now? Well, Paul, the apostle, writes to his disciple and protege, Titus, one of the several that he had. You know, he roams with Silas, he, he, he ministers with Timothy, he, he here with also Titus, these young preachers. Let me tell you something real quick about Titus. He was a Greek. He was basically not a Jew. He comes to faith in Christ and he's proof positive that God can save anybody doesn't matter who they are, where they've been, what they've done. God can save anybody. Here's Titus that's come to faith as a Greek. He's come to faith in Christ. And now Paul is entrusting him as a pastor to minister the gospel to difficult people in lands of great confusion. And Paul writes this letter, Titus is what we refer to, instructing him, reminding him, and urging him on how to lead these people. Most of all, focusing on who he is supposed to be. In chapter 3, he instructs Titus on what Titus should be reminding the church of. And hence, the very first words that we see in chapter 3, verse number 1, are the words, remind them. Who's he talking to when he talks about this remind them? He's saying to Titus, the preacher, teacher, remind the church. And specifically here, what Paul is going to have Titus remind us of is who we're supposed to be. I could say it this way, that which is most essential for us now. Let me remind you and let me remind us this morning about who we're supposed to be and what we're supposed to be in this moment. So four things very quickly. I know I am a Southern Baptist preacher and you're expecting three. 
Just bear with me. I can move quick, I promise, okay? Four reminders this morning of who we're supposed to be right now. Number one, remember that Christian character matters. Remember that Christian character matters. It matters right now. It's always mattered. It's always been essential. But friends, I would just say to you, it is absolutely essential right now. In a world of confusion and brokenness, in a world of hostility, this is one of the sad things about our moment as Southern Baptists, as I reference back to the Twitter controversies and the way that the storm's raging. And if you're not aware of all that stuff, go in peace. God bless you. Don't worry about it. But if you've tuned in at all, if you've paid any attention at all, you'll notice that Southern Baptists have a tendency sometimes when they get into these little ecosystems, social media ecosystems that is, they have a tendency to act exactly like the world. Exactly like the world. Let me, let me talk about that for a minute. Think about one prime example of where you see this in our world. Let's just take politics for example. Democrats, Republicans, watch how they devour themselves. Watch how they represent each other with caricatures and, and straw men. Watch how they are condescending, how they mock, how they ridicule, how, how we do those things. Here's the sad thing. Christians, we often take our cues from the world instead of the instructions of the Bible. Listen to what Paul says in verse number one. Remind them, watch this, and we don't like some of these reminders, by the way, but here they are. Remind them, he says, to be subject to rulers and to authorities. Now notice here that he doesn't nuance that. Notice here that he doesn't qualify that in some way. There's just the instruction to be subject to the rulers and to the authorities. In other words, God has, in fact, placed certain structures... And certain people in our lives that are there to act as authorities. You can imagine the chaos in our land if all of a sudden no one paid attention to any of the laws whatsoever. How would we be devoured in that moment, right? There's authorities in place for those very reasons and we're told to be subject to them. There are authorities in our family lives. Parents, for example. Children, I know you don't like it sometimes. And I know sometimes you bristle against it, but it is a God-appointed structure, God-appointed people in your life that are there for your good. There are authorities in our lives in the church, actually. The pastor of a church like this bears a, a level of authority in our lives. My pastor, for example, Chad Gilbert at First Baptist New Orleans, you know what? He has the right to ask me tough questions sometimes. He has the right to press on me in certain ways. And spiritually speaking, while legally he can't make me do anything, before God, the way he leads me, presses on me, I'm going to answer to God for how I respond to him. He is the leader of our church. When I walk into the church, here's what that means. It means I don't walk in here and say, I don't really care what Pastor Chad wants to do. I'm going to thumb my nose at all of that, and I'm going to make sure other things happen in this church. No, 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 no. God put him there to pastor that flock. And Paul says to us now to be subject to the rulers and to the authorities. Character matters, and this is part of how we live our lives as Christians. He goes on from there. Listen to this. Be subject to rulers and to authorities and to obey. Watch this one. Be ready for every good work. You know, we have half of our doctrine of, the, of works right and we got the other half, I wouldn't say wrong, I would say the other half of our doctrine of works is just vacuous. It's empty. 
It's undeveloped. Here's what I mean by that. We get half of our theology of good works right as Protestants, as evangelicals, and especially as Southern Baptists. Doctrinally, we are committed, and rightly so. We are committed to saying what works will not do. They will not save you. Right? So let me go ahead and beat that drum for just a second in case you're new to Christianity. You might be inclined to think that being a Christian is fundamentally about being a good boy or a good girl. You know, to be a Christian means you don't do this and you do do this instead. And so you might think that the good works are what's going to give you merit with God, please Him and allow you to get to heaven one day. And the Bible and Christianity says emphatically no that's like trying to pay your power bill with monopoly money it's funny money that's not the currency of heaven my friends you don't get to heaven by being a good boy or a good girl no we're very adamant this is the part of our doctrine of works that we get right the bible is very clear you are not saved by your good works and because of that we will beat that drum and beat that drum and we're right to do that in the communication of the gospel itself we get this part of the doctrine of works right but there's a whole other side to it that we just don't ever even talk about really and that is that christians do do good works we're supposed to do good works. In fact, we're commanded to do good works. We're given examples of good works. and We don't talk about this well. You see, we don't do the works to get our salvation. Let me say it this way. We do good works from our salvation. It's precisely because I have been saved. It's precisely because I have met Jesus Christ. It's precisely because he has redeemed me and changed my life that I now give myself in obedience to him and I live my life as he has commanded me to live my life. This is what Paul is saying right here. Be ready for every good work. Let me say it to you this way. Here's why this is important in our day and age. It's important in our day and age because, as I've said to us, this world is broken, this world is confused, this world is mad about everything all the time. This is a, a real telltale barometer in your life. If you're constantly mad and agitated and hostile about something, you're probably too absorbed in the world. And we need to back up for a second and come back to the scriptures and come back to Christ and let the Spirit of God deal with us and minister to us and fill us again with the things that come from only Him. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, mercy, gentleness, self-control, and the like. Fruit of the Spirit, Paul calls it in Galatians chapter 5. And from that... The Spirit of God flows through us and people see something different. It's important in our day and age because everybody's broken and confused and hostile and they are desperate to see a people that are different in a good way. And so Paul says to us here, be subject to the rulers and authorities and to obey. Be ready for every good work. There's another side to this doctrine of works. We don't do, again, as I've said, we don't do good works to get our salvation. We do good works from our salvation. He goes on, listen to this one. As we talk and think about our Christian character, subject to the rulers, ready for every good work. Verse two, listen to this one. This is a hard one. Speak evil of no one. When was the last time you said something really bad about somebody? Told you, it's a hard one, right? <laughs> I'm just, look, speak 
evil of no one, unless Paul says, no, he doesn't say unless. That's what we want to think, right? Well, but this person's hurt me. Yep, you know what the Bible says? Speak evil of no one. Well, this person's a cheater. Yep, well, the Bible says, speak evil of no one. Right? Look, we just keep going, going on and on. We, we love to find for ourselves reasons why we think there's an exception there. But we are instructed, number one, to speak evil of no one. And number two, we claim to be a follower of Jesus Christ. Okay, guess what? Followers go where he goes, quite literally, right? Followers do what he does, quite literally, right? Followers are about what he's about, right? Followers love what he loves. Followers behave in the same way that he behaved. Now go through the New Testament. Go through the Gospels and watch what Jesus does and tell me one time he ever speaks evil of anyone. He shot straight with people. But evil of them? No. Speak evil of no one. Watch this one. Be peaceable. Be peaceable. Jesus said, blessed are the peacemakers. Right? Be called the friends of God. Blessed are the peacemakers. We're to be a people that bring peace. Uh, Let's clarify what this really is the opposite of, and let's clarify what this is not. This is the opposite of someone who's always stirring the pot. We all know that person, right? We all know that person who's always just kindling the flame a little bit, stirring the pot a little bit. It happens in churches quite a lot, actually. I trust, I hope, I, you, you folks look like great folks, and I always fly blind when I come into a church like this, so for all I know, this is just a fantastic, wonderful thing, but at the same time, these are human beings in the room, and so this is just human nature. Uh, there's always that one or two people in the church that just like to stir up trouble, divisiveness. This is the opposite of what we're instructed to do, right? We're told to be peaceable. So this is the opposite of the pot stirrer. If it's the pot stirrer, this is who's being addressed here. Let me tell you what this is not. This is not, however, just constantly sweep things under the rug and never deal with things. Look, to be peaceable does not mean that you can't deal with problems, but you can deal with problems in ways that are pleasing to God and honoring to who he is. This is how we're instructed to be here. Be peaceable. So Look at it all here. Be subject to your rulers and authorities. Be ready for every good work. Speak evil of no one. Be peaceable. Be gentle. I struggle with this one. I got to be honest with you. I'm a pretty straight shooting kind of guy. That's the best way I can say it. The worst way I can say it is I'm pretty blunt. Just bam, there it is. And that's not always great. We're instructed here to be gentle, to be kind. Right? The, the Proverbs speak about this. You know, a rightly fitted word is better than apples of gold, we are told. Right? A timely word is like a salve and like a balm to the soul. We're told here to be gentle. Again, go back, not just and pay attention to the instructions of the scriptures right here. Now go back in your mind and watch Jesus Christ as he ministered. Was he not gentle with his people? Was he not kind-spirited and loving and compassionate, gracious and merciful when he talked to people? And remember, as you watch 
him proceed through these conversations in the Gospels, remember that we are following him. And to follow him means not just that we say all the doctrinal things that he told us to say. To follow him means that I'm actually now embodying the very life and ethos that he showed us. Be peaceable, be gentle, showing all humility to all men. Hey, look, I love who we are as Southern Baptists. In the best version of ourselves, we send thousands of missionaries around the world. We preach the gospel and people come to faith in Christ as a result of our work. In the worst version of ourselves, we're arrogant. In the worst version of ourselves, we've built this massive ecosystem for ourselves to be lords and masters in. So we can be something. So we can stand on stages and have spotlights. And yet what we're told to do is to be humble, show humility to all men and women. What, are we, what is Paul saying to, Timothy, uh, to Titus here? He's saying, remind them, the church, of these things. Christian character matters for us. We want to be faithful witnesses in this world, then these are the kinds of things we must be. Number one, Christian character matters. Remember that. Number two, remember this. Remember who you once were. Do you? Do you remember who you were before you came to faith in Christ? Do you remember the dispositions of your heart and of your mind, the troubles of your soul? Do you remember the brokenness in your relationships? Do you remember who you once were? Listen to what Paul says now in verse 3. For we ourselves, after having reminded us to be this kind, have this kind of character, now in verse number 3, he t- reminds us of who we are. We ourselves were also once, and now he's going to list out, he's going to describe how we once were. We were once foolish. What is a fool? A fool is someone who thinks something will bless him when it will actually destroy him. A fool is someone who thinks that which is actually a blessing is actually bad or undesirable. That's a fool. We were once that. I was. I gave myself to things that I thought would make me happy or satisfy me, and they never will. And all the things that actually can satisfy my soul and have satisfied my soul for the last 28 years, actually I thought were foolishness. We were once foolish. We were once disobedient. We were, by our very natures, we were rebels against God. We bristled at his instruction. We bristled at his commands. We wanted nothing to do this. We were foolish. We were disobedient. And watch this, we were deceived. Again, I took the bait, and so did you, in thinking that Satan could actually satisfy our souls. And maybe not him. None of us were actually probably sitting around thinking, ooh, the guy with, that's a red face and horns is going to make me happy. But all the bait that he put before us, we bit. We bought. We've embraced. Thinking that it would satisfy our souls when never, ever, ever shall it. We were foolish. We were disobedient. We were deceived. Listen to this. We were serving various lusts and pleasures. We were consumed by our appetites for satisfaction. Whether that came in the form of power, money, Fame, sex, drugs, you fill in the blank with your sin of choice. We all have a different soft spot. 
but we've all got a soft spot. We all have a different propensity, but we all have our propensities. We were, by our very nature, we were enticed by these things, serving our lusts. And notice the language there. It's very descriptive and it's very intentional. We weren't just indulging these lusts, he says. We were serving these lusts, meaning those desires controlled us. They consumed us. They had power over us. We were incapable of saying no to these things. We were their slaves. This is who we were. We were serving our lusts and our pleasures, living in malice. That just means badness with corrupt hearts. We're living in malice and envy. If I didn't have it, I was mad. If somebody else did, I was, I was not happy. Hateful. And hating one another. You know, hate is a common theme in the heart of the unredeemed. And hate is explicitly forbidden for the Christian. We're taught not to hate. This is hard, isn't it? Let's just be honest. Let's be forthright about it this morning. There are people that have hurt us. You have been hurt at some point by somebody somewhere. You've been used or you've been mistreated. You've been embarrassed by someone. You've been mocked or been cheated on or you've been stolen from or you've been physically harmed. And it is, let me say this, it is completely understandable that hatred would form. And yet while it is completely understandable that hatred would form, it is also wrong not honoring to God, and here's what you need to hear. It is not life-giving to you. You know why we need to run from hatred even if we've been hurt? Let me say it this way. We need to run from hatred because there's no life in it. There's just no life in it. Sure, you can hang on to that hatred if you want to, but you, you will be the only one it hurts. Or at least it'll hurt you the most. It'll destroy you. It'll, it'll consume you. It'll rob you every single day. Every single moment you choose to hang on to it, it will rob you from joy. It will rob you from life. And Paul describes it. This is who we once were. You know, I don't get to come out to California much. You have another seminary around here. Gateway Seminary, grateful to God for them. And my brother Jeff Orge, he's the president there. And so you probably don't know a whole lot about me and, and all those things. And all you've heard and all you've known about me is that I'm the president of New Orleans Baptist Theological Seminary. I mean, I obviously take my faith pretty seriously, right? I'm up here preaching to you after all today and all of those types of things. And because of those things, you probably have the impression of me that I've just always been this way. No, 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 no. My parents split up when I was seven years old. I lived in North Carolina. It is to this day the defining wound of my life. Shattered my little heart. I loved my dad. I seen him. He moved away about three and a half, or two and a half, three hours away. From seven years old until 17 years old, my life just spiraled out of control. By the time I'm in middle school, I'm doing all sorts of things I should not do. Drugs, alcohol, 
promiscuity, all sorts of things like that. I was a party animal. I was a wild child. I was that guy. I thought Christians were dorks. Wanted nothing to do with you folks or me folks now. As a junior in high school, I got arrested twice. First time I got arrested, I got arrested for stealing seven cases of beer out of the back of a grocery store. Second time I got arrested, I got arrested for smoking pot in my Jeep going mudslinging one Sunday night, October 9th, 1994. I'm the president of a Baptist seminary now, so it's kind of worked out, but, um, <laughs> but I can remember when I got arrested, the, right after I got arrested the first time, I can remember, look, I could tell the story about the arrests and the drugs and the alcohol and all the, the crime and other things that I was doing, the people that I hurt, the real story of my life during this time period, though, is not in those forensic facts. It was in the spiritual state of my soul and the darkness that I lived in. The real story was not so much about the arrests and the drugs and all those things. It was the shame. It was the brokenness. It was the sense that there was something terribly, terribly, terribly wrong with me that I could not fix. I got arrested that first time. First front page of the newspaper the next morning, we're on the front page. My girlfriend's grandmother's reading this. My mom is having to deal with this at work. And I can remember just the shame of this moment. I remember a couple weeks later in my room one Friday night, I'd had some friends over, they drank all my beers, we smoked up all the pot and did all those types of things and I had just reached a point where I couldn't keep doing this. I'm in high school but I'm coming to this conclusion, I just can't keep doing this, there's something wrong with me. I had long shaggy hair and this goofy little teenager beard <laughs> and I went into the bathroom and I shaved my head and I shaved my beard and I came back and I looked in the mirror and I looked exactly the same. And I did what I only knew to do. I felt pathetic doing it. I dropped down on my knees beside my bed. I prayed a little prayer. Lord, I don't know if you love me the way that people say that you do. And if you do love me the way that people say you do, I don't, I, I don't know if you're even real. But God, if you are real and you really do love me the way that people say you do, then help. I got arrested two weeks later. <laughs> And I can remember sitting in the cop car going, thanks, I appreciate that. <laughs> but it was that night, June, uh, or October 9th, 1994, I looked at the cop in the car that night, high out of my mind. I looked at him and I said, I'm moving to Raleigh tonight. I moved to Raleigh that night, lived with my dad, who'd left 10 years before. And I don't know how, I'll summarize, I'll say it real quick. For the next eight months, God took me from being the cool kid, party animal, popular kid, to an absolute nobody and brought me down to nothing. Humbled me, broke me. On June 16th, 1995, I heard the gospel. I threw myself onto Jesus Christ and he redeemed me. I knew that night two things. Number one, I knew that I was his now. And number two, I knew I'd spend the rest of my life doing this. Remember who you were. You want to be a witness in this culture? Remember character matters. Remember who you were. Thirdly, and I'll move quick here. Thirdly, remember who and how, who changed you and how he changed you. 
Verse number four, but when the loving kindness, whenever, whoever you were and what you did, that's who you once were in verse three. But when the loving kindness of our God and Savior towards men appeared, now notice how he describes it. When this happened, it didn't come by your good works of righteousness, which you have done. Remember, it's not that stuff that saves you. But rather, when his kindness appeared, according to his mercy, he saved us. Now watch how he describes this. Through the washing of regeneration. There's two, two words there that are important. There's a cleansing component to salvation. God takes that which was dirty and he makes it clean by his blood. Washing of regeneration. That's the idea of taking something dead and making it alive again. So notice those two pictures coming together. When we come into the blood of Jesus Christ that he shed for us, he cleanses us and makes us alive again. He takes that which was dead and gives it life. He does it through the washing of regeneration. And watch this, the renewing of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit now is deposited in my heart. Ephesians chapter 1 verse 13, in him after you believed, after you heard the word of life, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. Remember character matters, remember who you once were, remember who changed you and how he changed you, and then fourthly and finally, remember what your hope is. Verse number 7, having been justified by his grace... Watch this. We should become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. You and I have a promise, my friend. And that promise is about this world, but ultimately about another world to come. This is not it. This is not all. And I've got to say to you, friends, I'm really glad that it's not. Because let me just say this, in my life, I'm 45 years old, I have gotten to do everything, everything, everything I'd ever want to do. My bucket list is empty. If I die today, I die a really happy, happy, blessed man. No regrets, grateful to God for what he's given, I've gotten to do everything. I got to preach the sermons, pastor the churches, teach the classes, write the books, give the talks, be the president, be a dean, do all those kind of cool things, have a beautiful wife, four wonderful children. I mean, I, I, good gracious. And yet, despite the fact that I find myself completely satisfied by this world, I find myself completely unsatisfied by this world. There's nothing here that charms me anymore. I mean, there's got to be more. <laughs> And there is more. If you're chasing something in this life and you think it's going to make you happy, let me just go ahead and ruin the story for you right now and give you the plot. It doesn't. It won't. Not money, not power, not fame, not sex, not any of those other types of things that entice people typically. None of that stuff will do it. There's only one thing, and that is Christ and his kingdom. And that's what we're promised right here. We have a hope that we are heirs according to his promise. So here's how this is going to go down. We live our lives investing not for the here, but for the there. We invest in a kingdom that's coming and the day comes for us when this heart will beat its last time. These lungs will exhale that one final time. And my body and my soul will separate from each other. My body will go back to the dirt that it came from and my spirit will go back to God from where it came from. And there in the presence of Christ, it will bask in his glory, but it will also wait for him to come again and finish his work. The Bible says that 
the sky is going to split, the dead in Christ are going to raise. Christ shall return, this body and this soul shall come back together and we will live with him in heaven forever and ever and ever. Live now for that kingdom to come. You ever forget those things that are essential? I do. Therefore, Paul says to Titus, remind them that our character matters. Remind them of who they once were. Remind them who changed them and remind them of the hope that is to come. And as we do that, we will be the witnesses that God has called us to be in this world. I'm not saying we'll win. I'm saying we will be the people that God has called us to be. Father, bless us. We love you and we are grateful that we get to be your children, your sons and your daughters. I thank you for Pathway Church. The kind invitation for me to be with them today. I pray that, Lord, you'd use them mightily here in Southern California. That they would be a beacon of hope, of grace, and of mercy. That lost people all throughout this community would come to this church and find life. I pray for their new pastor, God, that you bless him as he takes, uh, takes position here in this church to lead. God, use him, we pray. Lord, we love you. We ask you to be with us this week. Help us to honor you and to please you in all that we do. In Jesus' name we pray and for his sake. Amen.